This week on Grubstakers, we've been paid to talk to you about George Soros. Hear the inspiring story behind the life of the man who broke the Bank of England and made his multi-billion dollar fortune through currency speculation and the usual legal version of insider trading. Hear also about the vast left-wing network he secretly bankrolls and why he is responsible for all of the podcasts you listen to. And lastly, about the uh, rather inconvenient allegations that he domestically abused his girlfriend. All that and more coming up on Grubstakers. I think we disproportionately stop whites too much. I taught those kids lessons on product development and marketing, and they taught me what it was like growing up feeling targeted for your race. I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. You know, I went to a tough school in Queens and they used to beat up the little Jewish boys. You know, I love having the support of real billionaires. Hello, welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. Sean P. McCarthy here, joined by my friends. Steve Jeffries. Andy Yo- Palmer. Yogi Polywall. And uh, this week we're going to talk about George Soros uh, <laughs> with all that goes along with that. Um, but before uh, we do, we should just do a, a bit of housekeeping up front. First of all, I'm, I'm back from Brazil. I went with my wife. Wonderful vacation. And I listened to the episode that you three recorded in my absence, and I thought it was great. And I How was... many museums did you burn down? <laughs> just one, and I just stabbed one right-wing presidential <laughs> candidate. Oh, just one? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing my, my part for the Antifa. Uh, interesting thing about... Uh, Bal- Actually, in uh, Brazil, uh, their word for that is Antifa. <laughs> well, Portuguese, what yeah. a complicated language. Yeah. yeah. I don't actually, so I don't know much about Brazilian politics, but I learned that uh, Bolsonaro, the, the right-wing politician who was stabbed, um, he, 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 when he, uh, he voted to impeach the former president, mm-hmm. uh, Rousseff, Dilma Rousseff, and when he, he was in the Congress, and in his speech to vote to impeach her, he dedicated his vote to the colonel in the military junta her to- who tortured her. Really? <laughs> Which I do just, politics aside, I respect the trolling game. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> and um, you, rec- uh, you recognize a burn for what it is, a solid yeah, exactly. burn. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, and yeah, like, I don't know. He's kind of a, a scary guy. I don't know that much. But, oh, uh, one of the more horrifying things I learned about him, and this is like a guy. I who, mean, he, he's not. He might have been scary, but now we know he's not impervious to knives. <laughs> yes, uh, his skin is not knife proof, which yeah. I think is the best research we could have done for the <laughs> podcast. But I mean, it's like so. It's like a rumor that if this guy gets elected, he's going to like send the army in and machine gun the favelas, you know. Which like maybe, maybe not. But it's like it just shows where my own mind is. That like the scariest thing I read about him was that he was advised by the University of Chicago economists. Oh <laughs> so I'm like, oh yeah, wherever wherever those are the chief economic advisors, people are going to die. <laughs> <clears throat> But um, uh, besides all that, uh, I did. Uh, I listened to the episode that the three of you uh, did without me. I found it very good, and I was fascinated to learn that there are other people on this podcast. So <laughs> thank you all very much. Uh, you were, like, listening to it and then just interrupting, trying to get back to the script. <laughs> uh, just uh, blurting out in my cubicle. Like, anyways, moving on. Back to what we were talking about. You pause the yeah. podcast, do your own diatribe for 20 minutes, turn yeah. it back on. Like, Stephen has spoken for more than 30 seconds without me cutting him <laughs> off. I don't think this is Grubstakers. 
Um, and uh, so, yes, I'm glad to be back from the trip. Um, oh, and, and last thing just I should mention, I went like, uh, and I wasn't going to mention it, but I was listening to Pod Damn America. Shout out to those guys, Jake Flores, uh, Ragov, Anders, etc. Um, I listened to them and they did mention... My that- friend and former roommate, Alex <laughs> Patak, who just got married. Yeah. Oh, congratulations to him. Um, but uh, uh, they meant, I was listening to their episode and they mentioned me because I had some tweet that went like semi-viral on left Twitter about how like... Being a landlord is a human right. Right, right. And right. eviction and foreclosure is a human right. And just like these kinds of things. Oh, and I said that I own 11 investment properties, and many of my tenants are POC and LGBT. <laughs> and that makes me woke. And uh, uh, that uh, socialists who attack landlords don't understand. Sean's what- tweets go fungal. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I, I think the point is that uh, all of those things are true, and uh, I would never just uh, take some basic tenet of socialism and then go on Twitter and say, you are not a socialist if you believe this. Shout out to Connor Arpwell. Uh, speaking of which, just kind of a, a fun thing, and um, here, here's what I'll say with regards to doing an episode on George Soros, is that um, if you are a person who listens to the podcast and perhaps doesn't enjoy the occasional ironic anti-Semitism that we do on here, uh, this might not be the episode for you. Why, uh, why would you say that, Sean? I don't see, I don't see what's wrong we, with it. Wouldn't, wouldn't want this to be my first. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Uh, yes, you might want to check back. Uh, because you just really can't talk about George Soros without discussing the um, feverish anti-Semitism that surrounds any discussion of his, particularly on the, the right-wing media, where it's alleged that he's, you know, controlling global events behind the scenes and funding all these different uh, malicious actors. And uh, just one interesting thing. uh, I mean, you can talk about them without anti-Semitism. We're just choosing not to. Exactly. Um, Oh, but so I did just want to mention, because uh, Andy did mention Connor Arpwell earlier, interesting uh, Fox News story. They looked at the Panama Papers, which, of course, we've kind of mentioned the Mossack Fonseca um, Mm -hmm. disclosures of all these different powerful people hiding money offshore. And one of the people who came up in the Panama Papers that Fox News found was George Soros. And apparently he set up these offshore funds. In addition to avoiding taxes, he used one of these offshore funds to invest in the Carlyle Group, which, oh, wow. of course, we did a whole episode of, right. um, you know, their their uh, investments in the military-industrial complex. So I would just like to say that this episode does, in fact, confirm that noted DSA record Connor Arpwell is funded by George Soros. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, before I, we begin, I think we should uh, lay some foundations. Yes. And let the audience know how a puppet show works. <laughs> Hello, America. There are... A few working parts to a uh, a puppet show. There is the uh, the puppet master here. There's the stage. There's the audience. There are the strings uh. to each puppet. And then there's the story. But there's also why. Why is the story? Why is the show happening? What is the puppet master? What is his motivation? Is it for the money? Is it for entertainment? Is it personal gain? What is it? Make no mistake, we are watching a show. <laughs> when, I, when I see a semi-mentally unhinged person at a street fair, those are all questions that fly through my mind. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Andy was playing the clip of um, what really kind of catapulted 
George Soros into uh, prominence in the right wing uh, uh, mind was um, Glenn Beck uh, in his Fox News show when he was on Fox News in 2010 did a three part special, like three hour long shows all devoted to George Soros, and he entitled this series The Puppet Master, <laughs> and they had ominous graphics of George Soros holding up puppet strings and controlling the world, uh, all of which Glenn Beck denied was anti-Semitic. I just want to um, say, uh, you can't have puppets without strings. Uh, marionettes, you have to do with strings, <laughs> but puppets can often just be your hand and nothing more, so... Uh, strange definition by hmm. Beck. Ble- Ble- yeah, he has but, to, He should have said marionettes, because... Yes. Like, what about Muppets? That, that seems Precisely. like a, a, a rather big word for his audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this yes. Is, this is going to be a tough episode since we are, well, three of us anywhere in DSA, so. Hmm. <laughs> we I, are Soros funded? Yeah. No, that's that's how I pay I'm my I'm still rent. waiting on my check. I, I, <laughs> I can't. It's not a coincidence to me. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so uh, the, I, I watched this uh, uh, three-part Glenn Beck episode today. And, that was uh, the entirety of Sean's research. Yes. If, say, somebody came up to you at a bus stop and said the things to you that Glenn Beck said on television, <laughs> you would call the police on this person mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it is just a, a, a ranting fever dream. And it's it's just pretty uh, fascinating to look into um, 2010 and the... Uh, uh, the ideas that permeated at the time and, and really what gave us the foundation of kind of Trump and, you know, all this kind of right wing conspiracy post-truth movement. But um, I guess uh, we have a couple clips from the Glenn Beck thing. And I just want to start there before we go through uh, George Soros's chronological biography. Soros has been granted at least four visits so far to the Obama White House. This, a man who has repeatedly called for the devaluation of the dollar. <laughs> Slow. Uh, um, decline in the value of the dollar, a, a managed uh, decline. He's waged a war against capitalism. Capitalism is not directly opposed to open society. Nevertheless, it poses some serious threats. This is a man who wants the world to be one Insane. global society without borders or individual governments. <laughs> one global society. Sorry about the bookstore. Yeah. One global gatekeeper. <laughs> And just to respond to that, uh, a few things. Uh, first of all, this excellent I- gong usage. <laughs> <laughs> this idea that uh, the globalists and the capitalists are different people right, is right. very strange to me because he says George Soros hates capitalism but loves globalism. You know, this man who is at the time worth 20 some billion dollars hates capitalism and made all of his money through financial speculation. Um, but second of all, uh, just the uh, constant invoking of a uh, Jewish man as the puppet master and a globalist who uh, funds communist takeovers. Uh, it's all just like really classic stuff that um, it just kind of blows my mind. The idea that Glenn Beck didn't know what he was doing when he put that program together. Yeah. Um but I was wondering, Andy, if you had the drop where uh, Glenn Beck does defend himself against charges that he is anti-Semitic. I'm playing him in his own words. And what do they do? They call me all kinds of names. I think the most popular is going to be, I, if I had to guess, their attack is going to be that I'm an anti-Semite, which does not even make any sense. <laughs> First of all, no one's a bigger defender of the Jews in Israel Ugh. than me. Name them on television. I'll walk down. I tell you what, George, you and I will walk down the streets of Israel together. Let's go to Jerusalem, you and me. Let's see which one of us is more popular. 
That's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite. Uh, my favorite defense is uh, I can't be a racist. I support an apartheid state. <laughs> well, I just like to imagine that Glenn Beck walks down the streets in Tel Aviv, and it's like Michael Jackson <laughs> in Berlin. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, and so um, then the other part of this is that like, again, it, the video's three parts. I watched them. The first one's the only interesting one. Interestingly enough, uh, it's a very sad side effect of all of Alex Jones's videos being pulled off YouTube that we have to rely on the uh, second-rate Glenn Beck conspiracies. <laughs> you don't get the pure shit. Like Alex Jones, for his part, is at least entertaining. Like Glenn Beck, it's just nonsense, and it was a chore to get through. Uh, uh, just. Alex Jones has alleged that George Soros uh, went to central casting and hired Jewish people to pretend to be Nazis for the Charlottesville rally in order to discredit the right. Wow. Uh, which is like, moi. <laughs> <laughs> like, at least that's entertaining. Um, uh, Glenn Beck, I just, I don't know why people watched that, but... Three million some people did watch his special on George Soros, and that really permeated the right wing ideas about uh, George Soros. I just love that we're in a day and age where Sean McCarthy beckons for Alex Jones videos. <laughs> <laughs> the prophecy is complete. The man is entertaining. <laughs> Say what you will. The man is entertaining. Um, oh, yeah. And, and so we should uh, clarify in, in light of the anti Semitism. We should also clarify that, Hitler, that uh, Sean watches Hitler videos for fun. <laughs> Look, you can set politics aside when you watch Joseph Goebbels' Total War speech. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this. Is a um, uh, slight digression. Uh, Joseph Goebbels gave the Total War speech mm -hmm. uh, to uh, an audience in uh, Nazi Germany in 1943 after the defeat in Stalingrad to you know hype the crowd up. Right. And he gets so into it. At one point, Joseph Goebbels, you can hear this in the audio almost admits the Holocaust is happening <laughs> because he shouts at the audience, uh, and would you support, and I'm paraphrasing, but would you support any measure necessary for the exterminate? And then he stops himself and oh, he goes, really? the suppression oh, of the Jews wow. in Europe. And I just like the idea. It's like, you know, sometimes the anti-Semitism <laughs> is just so good yeah. you can't pull out. Right, right. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, we should be clear that George Soros... Uh, is part of an immoral globalist clique that controls all world events from behind the scenes, but it's not the one you think. <laughs> it's just it, the ones on the Forbes list. Right. Um, but so uh, I guess the other part of the video is Glenn Beck multiple times predicts massive inflation is coming. This is back in 2010. He predicts that a Hershey bar is going to cost you $15. <laughs> he says, uh, if this massive inflation doesn't come in two years, feel free to mock me. Mark uh, my words. And I believe I said that for the last two years on inflation. As I told you, massive inflation will come. And you're beginning to see it now. This is, of course, as Stephen has mentioned, in the middle of a deflationary spiral. It's, it's right at the beginning of like an almost unprecedented deflationary spiral for the U.S. I, well, I beg to differ because every morning I get myself a monster energy drink, sometimes two. Mm -hmm. And I have noticed they're almost across the board of bodegas were $2. Now... <laughs> My bodega, two fifty. Another one, two twenty-five. Deflationary spiral, you say? <laughs> I'll I'll believe it when I see it. Well, wow. okay. iPhones have inflated massively. Yes. So. We do want to apologize in advance when this podcast ends four years from now because Andy has a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> I think him having a heart attack won't kill the podcast. I mean, let's be honest here. <laughs> I want to be clear that it will explode if everything goes according to plan. <laughs> um. 
Oh yeah, but so just two other things in the Glenn Beck. Uh, uh, so we mentioned this on the Koch brothers episode, but at the time of this, Glenn Beck is taking one million dollars per year from the conservative super PAC, uh, funded by shadowy billionaires called Freedom Works. He's taking a million dollars a year without disclosing it in order to promote them on the radio mm-hmm. and on television. So it is like. I mean, it's the ultimate irony is this fucking <laughs> lunatic shouting at you about the shadowy figures operating right. behind the scenes. But those are well, capitalists. Yeah, I mean, exactly. he's, he's still against globalists. <laughs> um, and then just another funny thing is like we've played uh, Glenn Beck defending himself against charges of anti-Semitism. Well, a couple times in the uh, three episodes, he quotes... Uh, the Prime Minister of Malaysia in 1997 blamed George Soros for the Asian financial crisis, which George Soros made some money on, but he can't really be blamed for what happened there. But um, uh, uh, Glenn Beck quotes uh, the Prime Minister of Malaysia as blaming George Soros for this crisis, but he, uh, for some reason, does not quote the other thing that the Prime Minister of Malaysia said in 1997 about George Soros, which is, quote, we do not want to say that this is a plot by the Jews, but it, in reality, it is a Jew who triggered the currency plunge. And coincidentally, Soros is a Jew. And it is also a coincidence that the Malaysians are mostly Muslims. Indeed, the Jews are not happy to see Muslims progress. And mark my words, our planes will never disappear. <laughs> <laughs> but it is just like interesting where it's like, Come on, Glenn Beck. Tell your audience the whole truth. Right, right. <laughs> tell them what they really said about George Soros on this episode where you're going out of your way to like pretend you're not making anti-Semitic <laughs> implications. Um, but I guess we can move on from um, the wonderful world of a noted, rehabilitated, uh, never-Trump conservative columnist, uh, Glenn Beck to uh, the actual biography of uh, Mr. George Soros, who's a, a pretty fascinating guy. He's made a lot of money on um, uh, uh, financial markets, particularly cur- currency speculation. But another thing um, that uh, uh, pops up in his biography and uh, in right-wing uh, fever dreams about him is essentially the idea that he was a Nazi collaborator. <gasps> and uh, so i guess we should just kind of mention uh his basic biography before we get to that is he was born in uh, budapest hungary in 1930 he was born to an upper middle class family his dad was a lawyer uh who incidentally enough was an austrian um austro he was in the austro-hungarian army that invaded russia he was taken as a pow he survived the russian revolution and then eventually got back to hungary uh where he raised his uh two children uh george soros and his brother um, and so, again, his father was a lawyer. This is kind of upper middle class uh, household. Um, and it's kind of noted that George Soros uh, didn't really appear Jewish. He had like blonde hair mm-hmm. uh, when he was a child, you know, so he was able to pass as a, a non-Jewish child, which, of course, becomes relevant because. Lucky. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in, uh, in, in World because War. Because he got a job with a local offic- business <laughs> official <laughs> helping with the uh, train scheduling. Yeah, yeah. He just made sure they ran on time. Oh yeah, couldn't do God. nothing wrong. But yes, so George Soros, born uh, 1930, uh, 1944. Hungary, the country, was um, an ally of Nazi Germany throughout World War II. But in 1944, they try to go a separate peace, so Nazi Germany invades them in uh, 1944. 
So up to this point, uh, uh, 1944, George Soros is 14 years old. Up to this point, Hungary hasn't really been too affected by the war. There are some shortages, but this is when his life really changes because uh, in 1944... Oh, why? What are Germany doing? <laughs> well, so in Hungary... Uh, 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 Made um, some freeways, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> a man named Albert Speer was launching an employment program <laughs> to help manufacture a Werner von Braun's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, new de- new rocket system <laughs> to deliver men to the moon. Um, but yes, yeah, so in 1944... Oh, the good Nazis. Yes, yes. The ones who said they were sorry slash I knew nothing about the prison camps. Yes. Uh, Albert Speer, who would uh, not be hanged at Nuremberg and was at this time actually on the phone uh, with officials at Auschwitz checking up on how many slave laborers they would send him. Uh, but so... Um, uh, in uh, 1944, there were about a million uh, Jewish people in Hungary. Uh, uh, almost half of them would perish in Auschwitz uh, in uh, this uh, horrific, in, uh, you know, they, it was, the German tanks rolled in without opposition, and then they just start rounded up uh, Jewish people. And so uh, what happens... Sean's taking the uh, uh, stance, despite all of his personal inclinations, to say that the Holocaust was, in fact, horrific. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's rock hard right now, but I'm not sure why. <laughs> it was one of the most horrifying fictional events of the 20th century. Um, oh, and I should mention that uh, most of my research for this episode comes from the book uh, Soros, The Life, Ideas, and Impact of the World's Most uh, Influential Investor by Robert Slater. Um, Wait, I, I you re- told me you got this information from a wet dream you had. <laughs> most of this is from the John Birch Society. Um, but so... What happens is George Soros uh, is initially uh, the the Germans uh, give a list of uh, uh, Jews to the various uh, Jewish councils, and then these Jewish councils are supposed to send out these d- deportation notices to these um, various Jewish people, which of course would result in their deportation to Auschwitz, where vast majority were exterminated. Though some would go on to uh, slave labor uh, for Albert Speer. But um, so young George Soros, again, a 14 year old who knew nothing about any of it. (laughs) Uh, Young George Soros, again, he's 14 years old at this point. He is uh, tasked with delivering some of these lists. Mm -hmm. He shows the list to his father and his dad immediately recognizes it as like a list of all Jewish lawyers in Hungary. And his father tells him, well, you should give these um, because it's like the way the Germans, the notice was like report for rabbinical services or some bullshit but oh, everybody really? at this point the rumors were going around people knew that there were likely exterminations or deportations right. so his father said yes deliver the the list to these people but tell them clearly that if they report they will be deported where most people knew what that meant right um so it's kind of alleged from this that uh george soros was a nazi <laughs> collaborator um because he delivered these lists yeah but you know just like um we all hold the uh, uh children in um <laughs> Sudan responsible for their crimes. Well, you know, I I think when it comes to deportations, you have to ask the question, were they breaking the law (laughs) by being there? (laughs) But um, again, it's just kind of like the most uh, uh, horrific crime in um, the 20th century, certainly. And uh, just a a weird, very traumatizing time. You mean besides bell bottoms. (laughs) Um, Nice. But so uh, 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 George Soros delivers these lists to these various attorneys. And then after this, his father, who, again, upper middle class, his father, the attorney, is able to bribe a Hungarian government official to get George Soros fake papers to pretend that he's a Christian. Um, I believe they pretend 
uh, yeah, to pose as the godson of this official. Um, So it is like another... Self-hating much? (laughs) It is another thing where um, uh, because George Soros was born rich, he was able to survive the Holocaust. I mean, there's no way around that. Like lots of... And that, and that you see that again and again. And um, it, so you're saying that because George Soros was a part of the wealthy Jewish clan, he became a master in understanding how wealth and Judaism could help him survive in the Western world. I will say it is horrifying if you listen to. I think it's either NPR or 60 Minutes. They kind of ask him about him, like, so what did this period of your life teach you about gold speculation? <laughs> <laughs> Like, uh, I don't know if that's the lesson you want. (laughs) Um, But yes, so, uh, and then, like, another thing that uh, the right wing uh, media points to is that during this time, at least one point, George Soros went with this official who got him these fake papers to inventory uh, the house of a Jewish family who had their property stolen because, of course, the Nazis would deport these people and then steal all their belongings. And so it's like... Allegedly. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. We don't want to be sued (laughs) by any sort of uh, litigious Third Reich attorneys. But, but yes, so uh, uh, that's the other thing is, like, basically the way the right-wing media tells it is that, like, 14-year-old George Soros was, like, drawing up lists (laughs) of, like... Sorry, edit, folks. Yeah, Albert Speer's workforce, (laughs) and then, like, uh, dividing the property of, like, these soon-to-be-murdered people. And again, 14-year-old like He was in Eichmann's office being like, actually, if you uh, run these trains at these times, you can get way more. (laughs) But so, yes. Uh, And then uh, uh, George Soros is ultimately able to survive the Holocaust with his family because of these fake papers. But they also spend a lot of this time hiding out. And, you know, they spend weeks at a time in, you know, attics and um, these kinds of things. Just hanging out. Exactly. uh, Hiding from people. And then, like, another thing is, like, he describes this time of his life as very happy, which I guess can be a little weird, but, you know, people deal with trauma in different ways, and he describes himself as, like, Indiana Jones on an adventure and these kinds of things. But I mean, I guess not getting killed in yeah. the Holocaust yeah. would be kind of a happy <laughs> right, thing. Right. I, I get why he looks at that time with pleasure, you know what I mean? Yeah. He doesn't look back on the time where he survived the Nazi attacks, allegedly, with any sorts of remorse. This was more like the Crystal Skull. <laughs> It was more fun with, like, <laughs> monkeys swinging around. I look stuff. back on fondness. At that time, I got to divide the property of uh, <laughs> several hundred thousand murder victims. Um, but, yeah, so uh, George Soros survives the Holocaust, but kind of uh, to this day is alleged to be a Nazi collaborator, which he very much was not. He was just a rich uh, Jewish family who was able to survive because he did not appear Jewish and because his family had the financial resources to protect him from a government that was intent on mass murder. Um, but so they uh, come back, the family does, uh, in after 1945, um, and then in 1947, they leave because the communists take over, um, which is uh, another thing is like this idea that George Soros is a communist when his family straight up fled communism right, or right. the idea that any billionaire is a communist <laughs> who doesn't uh, give all of their money away right away. But but anyway, so 1947, his family uh, leaves. Uh, he's 17 years old at this point, and uh, they go um, to London. So uh, his family goes to London, and then he uh, describes his period in his life as he kind of reaches bottom. Uh, he works a lot of odd jobs. 
Um, he's like a waiter at uh, some point. Uh, he, interestingly enough, in 1948, he does farm work and he organizes a strike of the farm workers so that they would be paid a piecework rate rather than a day rate. Uh, so interesting. Little side note on the uh, future billionaire yeah. who would uh, uh, later uh, help take the Democratic Party away from unions. <laughs> um, but so. Uh, what a colorful life he's living. Yes. Uh, and he was also a house painter, painter and all this stuff. But it's 1949. He enrolls in the London School of Economics. He gets a, 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 eventually a master's degree in philosophy in 1954. Um, but it's at the London School of Economics. He um, uh, encounters the writings of a guy named Karl Popper, who wrote in 1951 this book, Open Society and Its Enemies, which essentially uh, would become very influential for George Soros because it divides society into like, open and closed societies and this becomes a recurring idea for george soros that like you know these uh uh, fascist or communist societies are closed on the one hand and then you have liberal democracy as an open society on the other side you know what i think soros's greatest crime was what's Hmm. that not getting a stem degree (laughs) (laughs) clearly he was not serious about success yeah Yeah. didn't study the right coding slacker philosophy fucking hack grad student Um, and just interesting thing is like uh, from this time, uh, he, while he's working these odd jobs, he works as a railway porter. Um, he apparently breaks his leg, I guess. Yeah, he breaks his leg on while he's working there. And he gets a grant from the Jewish Board of Guardians, which was a charitable organization that gives out financial grants. to The JBG. To, exactly. Um, but interestingly enough, and he writes about this, he essentially lied to them and pretended that he was not also getting national insurance from oh, the British wow. government. And uh, he got them to give them this in his insurance as well. You got time and, and is, a half. You know, and again, we've <laughs> we've kind of beat this point to death, but there's no such thing as a self-made man. And George Soros was entirely able to survive this period because of insurance payments from both the British government and this charitable organization, the Jewish Board of, Guard, of Guardians. And um, So he's a thief. <laughs> <laughs> this motherfucker broke his leg and got paid twice for it? What a fucking rat single payer will never ever happen in this country <laughs> <laughs> but uh so at this time uh george soros is working odd jobs uh he graduates masters of philosophy in 1954 uh he initially struggles in the early 50s he wants to write a book he uh struggles with this and eventually decides he's not going to be able to write a book um so he gets into fi- oh, poor guy he gets into finance essentially because he's like I need money. This is where the money is. It's simple as that. And the way George Soros describes it is that he uh, drafted a letter to all of the investment banks in London. This is in about 1954. Um, And then he got a job from one of them called Singer and Friedlander. Um, and so from 1954 to 56, he starts his... This is fun- how everyone got a job in the 50s. Yeah. <laughs> just write a letter to everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, mm-hmm. just cold letter. letter. <laughs> yeah. And um, but so uh, basically he doesn't really do anything eventful in 1954 to 56 working in finance. Uh, The way it's described is like he was 25 to 26 years old. So you're mostly just taking marching orders from more senior people. But it does give him an idea of the European financial markets. And this is his first exposure to this. And so this becomes significant when in 1956 uh, he moves to New York City with about $5,000. Apparently he got from a relative or something. Uh, He moves to New York City and uh, based on the... uh, Or something? We don't know? Or it just was kind of vague? George Soros has said that he does not remember exactly how much money he had (laughs) at this point. 
He said, like, oh, because it's all such paltry oh, sums now. Well, that billionaire forgot how much money he was given at one point. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. Shocking. Fucking shocking. <laughs> he moved to the most expensive city of all time. Just, no, nah, I don't remember how much money I had in my pockets. Well, rent was like eight cents back then. <laughs> Um, but so he gets uh, this letter from a, a colleague who worked with him. Wait, uh, you said five thousand? Uh, yeah, about five thousand U.S. dollars. Gonna... Hey, would you mind crunching those numbers? <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna do it. Um, but so remember, pre Jimmy Carter dollars, nineteen fifty two, fifty six, fifty six. Yeah, but so uh, he moves to New York City, and uh, uh, one of his colleagues in London writes him a, a recommendation letter to get him a job at F. M. Meyer or Mayer, was the um, uh, Lond- uh, the New York City financial firm that he went on to work for in 1956. And basically it's here that his knowledge of the European financial markets becomes like an essential um, attribute because this is kind of the start of globalization, essentially, where before this is just beginning uh, the kind of Wall Street trading in European financials. 48000 So he what? had $48,000. 48000 Yeah, you what? were making... You were making fun of Glenn Beck for predicting hyperinflation. <laughs> 48000 Yeah. If he you for- said 5000 oh, right? He the forgot reports? that yep. amount of money. Think about that for a second. I don't even... Could you ever forget Forty-eight grand. <laughs> oh, hey, how much was that car? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I'd like to be able to one day. Oh, my God. <laughs> Not with this attitude. Not with this attitude. That is fucking nuts. Mm-hmm. And that's alleged. We could be more. Yeah. Wow. He forgot the other 15,000. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he, uh, uh, at this point, he moves to uh, New York City. He gets married for the first time. Um, I guess we could mention that. He's, he's married in the uh, uh, late 50s. He would uh, divorce in uh, 1977. And, uh, and he's got three kids with this broad. Right. And he said, uh, George Soros himself said, I identified with my fund. It lived off me and I lived with it, slept with it. It was my mistress. It was a fear of losing it and the distress of being wrong that I was trying to avoid. It was a miserable way to live. And so, of course, you know, he's... I ejaculated in this fund. <laughs> I fucked it in its face <laughs> while it uh, begged me for more. First wife <laughs> there's name. A, there's a real liquidity crisis. <laughs> catch I, got, I got really angry at people when they pulled out of my fund. <laughs> His uh, first wife's name's Annalise Witzschak. Mm-hmm. Uh, three kids, Jonathan, Andrea, and Robert Soros. I brought, I brought other men home to fuck my fund in front of me <laughs> while I jerked <laughs> off. <laughs> it's a close-in fund. Uh, one thing, one thing I want to mention about um, Robert Soros, one of uh, his children from this marriage, is he got a divorce. Uh, the son got a divorce a little while ago, and uh, during the divorce, there was a heated battle over a 7.7 million Christopher Wool painting. And all it is, is it's like a giant painting with a white backdrop, and in big, bold black letters, it says F-O-O-L. They're fighting over a painting that says the word fool. That's it, for $7.7 million. Hmm. That's art. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, very efficient uh, allocation of resources where people are sleeping <laughs> on the streets. Uh, there's a, a drop, uh, maybe I'll put it in post, but essentially, like, NPR asks him, like, how do you feel when you uh, see homeless people sleeping on street grates? And he says something like, well, I don't give money directly to homeless people. <laughs> it's just the most, like, you don't really even think about this shit no. anymore, do you, kind of answer. That's fucking maniacal. Right, and so we haven't mentioned, but uh, 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 George Soros is worth today, 2018 September, about 
$1.3 billion. In 2017, he gave about $18 billion, so he was previously worth much more. Right. But he gave it to his Open Society Foundation, which we'll talk about in a little bit. It's essentially a charitable organization that promotes uh, these kinds of open society initiatives, um, and then it's wrapped up with its whole its own can of worm of uh, private philanthropy. Or um, is it? You'll find out momentarily right. on Grubstakers. But this this man who could conceivably end homelessness is like, no, let's just do it through my little bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah no, Hannah Arendt's observation on the banality of evil was reductionist in its <laughs> <laughs> now, conclusions. I'll, I'll help out the world, but only if it's tax-free. <laughs> but uh, uh, So just one other thing with his marriage. He was divorced uh, from his first wife in 77, and then um, uh, just according to the book that I mentioned, uh, on the very day of his separation, he ran into a 22-year-old woman named Susan Weber, who he'd met before at a dinner party. He was 47 at this point. And he said, uh, quote, I just got separated from my wife today. Would you like to have lunch? Uh, so, you know, he doesn't doesn't wait. Yeah, he's got uh, two kids uh, with uh, Susan. Uh, their names are Alexander and Gregory. Would you like to do an Eiffel Tower with my fund? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> he took Susan Weber back to his place and said, my fund has to watch. <laughs> Um, but so, yes, uh, and then he would later go on to marry uh, Susan Weber uh, about six years later uh, and have um, two more children with her, one of whom under Wikipedia is just described as an artist. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, New York Post article has a great headline. Uh, it's about, um, I believe, uh, Alex Soros. Uh, and it says, this former fat kid is now a billionaire air playboy on the New York City party scene. What a great, what a great heading for an article. Former fat kid is now a billionaire playboy. Yes. yes. At any point, was he not a billionaire <laughs> playboy? Well, he was fat. So, you know, as we all know, billionaire children that are overweight are immediately murdered. Yeah. Uh, with no records. Yeah. Of, like with Tonka trucks, he he was literally like when he was five and had, uh, you know, Tonka or whatever the rich equivalent brand of Tonka trucks is. <laughs> he was literally a billionaire playing boy. <laughs> Um, but so George Soros, uh, he, as we mentioned, he starts in Wall Street in 1956. He moves through a few different firms. He moves to a new firm in 1959. And again, at this point, his focus is European securities. Uh, he's one of the few people at most of these firms who's like has a, a lot of knowledge of the European market. So he makes suggestion as to um, uh, uh, what European uh, securities and uh, uh, stocks and companies to be involved with. Um, and so... Uh, he starts kind of getting prominence here, and then in 1963, he moves to another fund, uh, uh, Arnold and Beekroder or something. It's, it's apparently, at the time in 1963, it was one of the leading American houses trading in foreign securities. Wait, wait, I got something important to say. What if George Soros' son uh, tried to be shitty Batman? <laughs> Go on. No, that's the end of it. <laughs> Well, I think someone would have to murder George. I mean, that's the first step. And uh, honestly, mm, kind of tempted. Kind of tempted. <laughs> Trump uh, conscripts uh, George Soros' children to hand out deportation notices. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you know what your dad did. Come on, get in line here. 
Um, but so, yeah, uh, uh, just according to, again, the biography I read um, uh, from Robert Slater, um, in 1963, he was hired as an analyst at this new firm, um, uh, again, working primarily with foreign securities because he had a, a network of contacts in Europe. Yeah, from he was analyzing those securities. <laughs> from his, uh, his days as a London uh, analyst, he had some contacts in Europe, and he could speak a number of languages, including French, German, and English, of course. So uh, he was able to work in arbitrage pretty efficiently. And uh, he knew how to say, you need to report to the train station at 10 and all those <laughs> languages. <laughs> um, but uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, so he, uh, his really his big break is uh, this fund he works for, uh, this firm he works for in 1963. In 1967, they let him set up an offshore uh, fund, a hedge fund. Basically, in 1967, he starts two of these hedge funds. The Double Eagle Fund is 1969, and the First Eagle Fund is 1967. And so these offshore funds, uh, were he operated them from New York City, but uh, they were both based in the Dutch Atlantis, or uh, Antilles, excuse me. Atlantis? The, du- <laughs> the Dutch Antilles. <laughs> uh, so they were literally offshore funds. It's the hidden city of the Netherlands. They were offshore funds where the SEC would not look at them and anybody, anybody in them uh, did not have to pay capital gains taxes. So again, this was all just uh, bullshit loopholes. Right. And his investors were... Anyone, pro- anyone who's in that fund doesn't have to pay... <laughs> Never mind, sorry. <laughs> they just have to watch Soros have sex with his wife. <laughs> um, but so uh, uh, he uh, his his clients are at this point, 1967, uh, primarily uh, wealthy Europeans. And again, this is uh, he's done well for himself at this point uh, to the point where he is able to put uh, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Just his- just a side note: Dutch Atlantis is uh, Amsterdam after global warming <laughs> takes full effect. <laughs> uh, uh, Dutch Atlantis is uh, when you smoke a joint underwater. <laughs> um, but so uh, uh, George Soros starts this fund. Dutch Atlantis is where that guy took the reporter in his submarine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, George Soros. She was killed by mer people, but he couldn't reveal their secret out of fears of reprisal, so he took the murder rap. <laughs> <laughs> he gave her a, uh, a, a, a notice to report for rabbinical service the next day. <laughs> um, but so uh, George Soros starts this hedge fund with about $250,000 in his own money. Again, he's been working on Wall Street from 56 to 67. He's working, you know, 80-hour work weeks and all that. And this is at a boom time. Bless you. A boom time for Wall Street. Uh, So he's able to make a significant amount of money uh, to the point where, like, initially he was more interested in philosophy and he thought he would make, like, half a million and then get out and retire and be a philosopher. But he just found that he had a knack for playing with these financial markets and arbitrage and all this stuff. Um, But in 19... Oh, we've been robbed of George Soros' great (laughs) contributions to philosophy. Oh, don't worry. (laughs) Uh, He would later go on to write uh, plenty of books. So if you are interested in reading his philosophy, uh, you have the ability. (laughs) Um, But so uh, uh, 1967 and 69, uh, his his at-the-time firm lets him set up these offshore funds uh, that, again, are kind of based around a skirting tax law. Uh, but these are early hedge funds, and he plays with derivatives, and he and does... Skirting, mistress. This guy really likes... 
fucking money. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, but so uh, uh, he sets up this hedge fund, and again, you know, hedge funds would become more prominent later. But this is kind of the the early days of them, where they have kind of the two and twenty rule. So he's making a shit ton of money off wealthy European investors, primarily. When they're kind of, they're kind of young. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You can get that. But so. Uh, um, in 1970, himself and a partner uh, leave this uh, Wall Street firm that he was working for, and uh, they set up their own fund, which is called Soros Fund Management. It's later called the Quantum Fund. Um, so what exactly, do you know what they were investing in or how they were really making so much money? I know that essentially when they set up their own thing in 1973, they got heavy into the weapons industry, which we'll talk okay. about in a second. Um, and then, like, their early investments in the 60s, uh, the, the biography I read just kind of says they were in various European securities. Uh, apparently, George Soros uh, uh, sent out a memo in 1969 that was about uh, these investment vehicles that were going around called real estate investment trusts. And essentially, he predicted that they would have a growth and then a boom and then a bust. And he successfully predicted when the growth would be and then got out in time before these uh, particular real estate vehicles collapsed. And then so he busted. Th yes. <laughs> uh, he was also into foreign exchange. Yeah. Um, so so it was sort of the uh, being in the right place at the right time with the Marshall Plan, probably. Yeah, some of that certainly helped him out. Um, you know, I mean, like, again, and uh, of course... Being an offshore fund, he was able to avoid taxes and government regulation, whereas we'll kind of get to in a second. He's definitely benefited from what would commonly be called insider trading or insider information. Um, but so I, I do just want to talk about uh, basically in 1970, they set up this fund himself and his partner um, uh, set up this fund. And early on, they're essentially getting heavy into the uh, weapons industry. And uh, I, I just want to quote a bit from the Robert Slater biography here. Um, so is that a, um, him and his partner, is that a, a fun to polycool? It was some guy named Rogers who we would part uh, ways with in 1980, uh, who's only worth uh, several hundred million dollars. Polydrama. What a broke bitch. I know. Um, but so, according to the biography, around 1973, about three years after they set up their fund, uh, they identify the American defense industry as a potentially profitable source of investment. Um, because Israel went to war in October 1973, uh, it suffered a lot of casualties, lost lots of planes and tanks. So uh, there was some indication that Israel's military technology was antiquated. So Soros had the idea that American military technology must be antiquated as well. Uh, and realizing that the Pentagon's hardware was obsolete, he knew they would have to spend large amounts of money to uh, revitalize it. And so basically himself and his partner traveled to Washington. They talked with Pentagon officials. They journeyed to defense contractors around America. And then they became convinced that they were right. And so in mid-1974, they began buying up defense, stop, defense stocks, including Northrop Grumman. Um, you, or I think it was just called Northrop at that point. United mm -hmm. Aircraft and Grumman. Yeah, they were separate companies. Um, and they also took a piece in uh, Lockheed uh, at this time. So, again, it's just kind of like a uh, military-industrial complex. <laughs> uh, like, oh, look at all those kids getting incinerated. That's where the money's <laughs> at. Uh, 
but yes, yeah, so uh, they make a healthy profit, and then they also go back into defense again in 1977 and 1978 uh, because um, uh, they th- their great insight was Wall Street soured on defense stocks because Jimmy Carter was president and was talking about peace, and they were like, well, no, that really doesn't matter what the president says. Defense stocks are always going to be a good bet. Yeah, yeah. Apparently when Jimmy Carter came into office, he was very anti-nuclear. Mm-hmm. And then just like a couple of military advisors had to talk to him. And then he was all in. It, it was basically like a pre-Obama administration type or like basically the same thing that happened in the Obama administration where just like, you know, some generals talk to him. And then he's like, oh, we OK, we got to we got to amp up these nukes like after spending the whole campaign talking about denuclearization. They, they, they introduced it by saying, uh, Mr. President, have you ever been to Dallas, Texas? <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, yeah, I mean, like, essentially, uh, Soros, among other things, uh, uh, he's making his money on defense. This is what really makes him a multi, multi-millionaire. And uh, we can argue about how much of that is uh, uh, self-made and how much of that is just weaponized Keynesianism and Cold War spending and all this stuff and essentially profiting off human death and endless war and all this kind of stuff. Um, but of Do course, you mean self-defense? <laughs> uh, but so, and uh, George Soros was also one of the bondholders in uh, New York City. New York City uh, famously uh, went through bankruptcy and uh, uh, the bondholders were prioritized as... Uh, a lot of people identify this as kind of the start of the neoliberal era. So take with that what you will. Um, but so uh, in the 70s... We'll probably talk more about that if we get to some Rockefellers later. Hmm. Um, but so in the 70s, uh, he's making his money off defense. And then 79, he renames it the Quantum Fund, uh, which was a tribute to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics. Fellow Nazi collaborator, <laughs> you can never you can never be simultaneously sure you're going to make money and that it's ethical. Mm-hmm. Um, but so uh, his partner uh, Rogers around this time leaves. He had about a twenty percent stake in the firm. Uh, Soros held an eighty percent stake. And wow, around this time Soros is worth you know tens of millions of dollars at yeah. minimum. Um, so Soros's first kind of uh, breach with trouble is he is charged in 1977 by the SEC. Um, they charge him with civil fraud and violation of anti-manipulation provisions of uh, federal security laws. And so, again, quoting from the biography, um, it was this company called Computer Sciences. And so he allegedly um, used a, a broker or urged a broker to sell Computer Sciences shares aggressively. The broker sh- sold about 70% of all the activity in Computer Sciences one day was um, this uh, broker that George Soros had instructed to aggressively sell. Um, and then basically uh, uh, there was a, a public offering that the SEC said was uh, b- had been based on the artificially low price of trading at the end of the day. So essentially he engaged in... Um, I guess not really a pump and dump, but essentially he drove down the... He colluded with others to drive down the price of a stock and then buy it back at this artificially low price when right. it went on a public offering. And uh, uh, So it was a dump and pump. <laughs> there you go. And so uh, Soros uh, signed a consent degree in which with the SEC where he neither admitted nor denied, uh, and he alleges it would have... You could uh, say he took... He, he did a... Dirty Sanchez with that stock. <laughs> uh, uh, Soros said it would have... Where com- was Pump and Dump when we first... 
hit upon that joke. <laughs> that series of jokes. <laughs> Uh, but so Soros said it would have taken him too much time and money to fight the SEC here. Uh, he says in 1981. I'm sorry, uh, to my listeners, I want to issue a correction. Cleveland Steamer is what oh, I was thinking of. Okay. Well. Uh, George Soros said in 1981, uh, quote, the SEC can't believe that one person can perform as well as I did without doing something wrong. So they looked for something to latch on to. Um, as opposed to the uh, more uh, realistic expectation, which is that a uh, relatively underfunded government agency caught you once. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, also in 1988, he did another insider trade, which w- he would eventually be found guilty in European court. It was dragged all the way out to the late 2000s, early 2010s, where essentially a bank called Society General, uh, one of his friends called him up, and said that Society General. There you go. The, the French bank and um, one of his friends called him up and said that they were going to um, buy this bank. They were going to uh, do a hostile takeover or some sort of major investment, which of course would drive up the stock price. George Soros doesn't go in with them on it, but later he buys the stock. Clearly, knowing this inside information, um, he's eventually like charged. It's like he did this in '88, and then he gets charged in 2002, and then it drags on almost a decade, and eventually the European High Court upholds a fine. So he just pays a few million dollars for doing this. So those are the two times he's been caught. But um, without belaboring the point too much, I do just want to say one other thing from the book, which is essentially they just allege that the real crime is what's legal. Because George Soros, by the uh, 70s, especially by the 80s, becomes a member of a very exclusive club, which the book says has about 2,000 members worldwide. But it's just the uh, prime ministers, finance ministers, heads of central banks in um, the rich countries, you know, particularly in Europe and these kinds of things. And just quoting from the book, uh, he could have a lunch with a central banker or courtesy call on a prime minister. Uh, One day in the early 80s, For example, Soros showed up at the Bank of England. He had been invited there to share his views on reviving the financial markets through monetary restrictions. He had attracted the banker's interest after purchasing $1 billion worth of British bonds in uh, 1980. Uh, I'm sure they had a wonderful lunch over at Comet Pizza. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he was talking to Michael Lewis, uh, the the journalist, in 1993, uh, and he said... uh, that after he met with the president of Moldova in the morning and the president of Bulgaria in the evening, you see, I have one president for breakfast and another president for dinner. Uh, such encounters clearly give Soros an advantage over other investors. And again, just quoting from the book, he might have to wait months before getting something useful from a meeting. It was an offhand remark a finance minister had said at a lunch meeting three months earlier. The point was that he had met with the finance minister and had deposited the conversation in his memory bank for further use while others had been reading the newspapers. And so, again, this is just kind of like the legal version of insider trading, where certainly by the 80s, but definitely by the late 70s as well, he's... Uh, managing so much money and he has so much connection with the world financial system that he is able to trade on information that other people simply can't trade on. And that's how George Soros became a billionaire. Wow. (laughs) What an illustrious life that led George to go from, wow, really, really rich dude to a really, 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 really rich dude. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the mid 
so in the mid-1980s, he's already a uh, multimillionaire, he's doing very well, and he's essentially trading on insider information, but in the legal sense, that he's a jet-setter, he goes around Europe. In 84, he sets up his foundation in Hungary, it was the Open Societies Foundation, uh, essentially because the then-communist government needed outside investors, and he used this as a way to uh, kind of promote um, uh, student and uh, anti-government movements. Like, he gave them, like, 400 photocopiers under the condition that they couldn't trace what they were used for so of course this became a big source of the underground press right, using right. these George Soros photocopiers and again it's kind of a weird thing where it's like Glenn Beck for his part argues that George Soros undermined four countries but of course one of them was communist Hungary <laughs> so he argues George Soros undermined communist Hungary and that's why he's going to bring communism to the United <laughs> States I mean it's all just ridiculous but uh, and, and again it, the we don't really know. He, they were really just uh, photocopying the future flight logs for Jeffrey Epstein planes <laughs> to hand out to his rich friends. Uh, they were photocopying his deportation lists. <laughs> Uh, but so, yes, we don't really know how much of George Soros. George Soros, for his part, are... Uh, says that he's much more interested in philanthropy than he is in making money. And, you know, I would assume that... Oh, yeah, no, his track record shows it. I would assume at the point that you get to, like, 26 billion, I mean, I guess there are Carl Icahn guys, but I would assume at some point (laughs) you don't really care as much about making money. But Mm. it it has been alleged that George Soros' Eastern European philanthropy efforts have been another avenue for him to trade on insider information and use government contacts to know what is coming. Um, and this has been alleged by multiple people, and it seems certainly pro- plausible. I couldn't imagine him not doing that. Yeah, it'd be crazy but, to be like, oh, he's got insider information. He's not using it, though, but he's got it. I'm going to mm-hmm. go to work tomorrow and be like, yeah, you know, making money is great, but I'm more interested in philanthropy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but so in the mid 80s, he kind of goes back and forth between philanthropy and the fund, though. Interesting story. In 1984, he makes a big bet in the British market. And then I'm just, again, quoting for the biography. Uh, uh, he, he buys uh, stock in Jaguar, among others. But according from the biography, what was really at play was the single crucial fact that Margaret Thatcher was going to make sure that Brit- British privatization would be underpriced. So essentially, he makes money in 1984 and 85 by knowing that the British government under Margaret Thatcher is about to sell off a bunch of public assets for less than they are worth. And these companies that are British that he buys are going to be able to make money because they are buying these undervalued formerly public assets. So again, nothing illegal about that. But uh, man, does it make you feel (laughs) dirty. he uh, became a billionaire by uh, making Jeremy Corbyn have to sit on the floor when he takes a railroad <laughs> train. Um, but by the early 1990s, George Soros is a billionaire. He gains international fame in 1992 when he becomes, quote, the man that broke the Bank of England uh, because uh, the British pound was at this point on the uh, European exchange rate mechanism, yep. which was a precursor to the euro and was the idea that the British pound had to go within a certain price band of the uh, German mark. And yeah, the, it had to be within a certain sort of multiple of whatever the mark was. Mm-hmm. And they were like countries that want were interested in joining the future eurozone. Basically, would go onto the exchange mechanism and have mm-hmm. to prove that they could like keep their currency stable. Right. And so George Soros in 1992 enters into a 10 billion dollar short position. Essentially, 
Uh, we've gone through shorting, but he uh, borrows pounds to sell them later on the assumption that the price will go down. And uh, by doing this, he puts a lot of pressure on the Bank of England in order to respond to this and keep their exchange rate mechanism stable, which they are ultimately unable to do. And they have to leave the exchange rate mechanism. And George Soros makes about a billion dollars on wow. this deal. A lot of his reasoning was just simply based on, like, palace intrigue between Thatcher and her deputies. <laughs> like, because they're, um, Maj- uh, what's his name, John Major? Yeah, yeah. A deputy prime minister mm-hmm. was, like, his whole thing was joining the the exchange mechanism. Oh, yeah. And Thatcher it? was against it. Right, and that's why Thatcher got pushed out, right? Because she was, like, that was her last battle was basically the, uh... She was anti-Eurozone, and I guess she won in the end, but, uh, you know, Brexit. But, um, but like, him, like he <laughs> he went on, like, multiple trips. Soros went on multiple trips to London to talk to people to learn about, like, to try the, to... yeah, to learn about, like, the internal politics of the Conservative Party. Is he part of the reason that uh, Britain never went on the Euro? Or I would imagine, uh, uh, I don't know all the politics, but getting driven out of the exchange re- mechanism was the precursor to the euro. So mm-hmm. probably that had an effect on everybody being like, okay, let's pump the brakes here because okay. we can't hold up this exchange rate mechanism. Well, if he, if he didn't cause it, he didn't know about it before it happened. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But so essentially, uh, he's a billionaire by the early 90s. He makes a billion dollars breaking the Bank of England, and this gets him international fame, particularly in uh, England. Uh, But he's um, uh, really—and then at this point in the 90s, he kind of steps away. He he puts his fund in control of other people. Um, He— yeah, he likes to watch. Exactly. <laughs> he retires like Jay-Z after yes. the Black Album. And uh, he writes various books. He writes his first book, The Alchemy of Finance, in 1987. And he starts writing these different books on, you know, economics and, uh, to a lesser extent, philosophy. Um, and He, he gets he in the anime out. with Full Metal Alchemist. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he puts he, out bland albums. Yes. He, and he gets much more into his philanthropy, which is, again, the um, uh, uh, Open Society Foundation, uh, they set up in uh, Hungary in 1984, Soviet Union 87, Poland 88. He funds the Solidarity Movement, Czechoslovakia 89, Romania 1990. Uh, interesting rumor is that when he sets up in Romania, people start spreading the rumor that he's going to sell Transylvania to Hungary. Uh, and uh, he's even in the early 90s in Hungary, he's the subject of uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, uh, which continue to today where in 2018 they've had to leave Hungary and relocate to Berlin because the current right-wing government in Hungary has like put out billboards displaying George Soros as an enemy of the state and these kinds of things. Oh, wow. So, Hungary is also like, we don't need Transylvania. We've got Rocky Horror Nights already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess, like... I want to sell your mud. <laughs> uh, what really uh, brings George Soros into the mind of people like Glenn Beck is in 2003, he gets heavily involved in the project to unseat George W. Bush. He was uh, He's a liberal billionaire who's uh, very horrified by the George W. Bush presidency, the war in Iraq, these kinds of things. Bush was just making him too much money in his weapons investments. <laughs> <laughs> um and so uh, Soros, he spends about $27 million, um, uh, various groups, uh, liberal groups, including MoveOn.org, Center for American Progress, um, uh, uh, ACT was another one. Oh, that's why MoveOn was such a thing. Yeah. 
Um, and again, uh, 27 million is, is not nothing, but uh, as we mentioned on a Koch brothers episode in 2016, they would spend over 880 million in the 2016 election. So again, it is just kind of funny where the, these right wings hysterics about the George Soros network, which is a drop in the bucket. For of, our listeners, I'm very knowledgeable about this, but what's moveon.org? Oh, you know, it's a, well, it's a political group that got its name and people forget this. From uh, as, like the Democratic Party activists urging liberals to move on from the scandals from the from, Clinton impeachment. The Clinton impeachment. Oh. Yeah, it was like censor him and move on. Yeah, was the just idea. to get oh, over for it. lying about his blowjob and uh, <laughs> having <laughs> oral sex with a seventeen-year-old staff member, eighteen. <laughs> Which you know, and they they do the important work of uh, getting you to sign a petition that says there should be foosball in every high school cafeteria. <laughs> And then using that, sending you emails every day for the rest of your life. Oh. Well, did they get the foosball tables? (laughs) No. Yeah, got to spend those Soros bucks somehow. (laughs) But yes, so he, uh, and this is where he becomes kind of a right way. The most powerful online petition empire. In American politics. This is where he becomes a right-wing bugaboo, because essentially, before 2004, nobody really gives a shit about him, but he becomes an easy enemy for the right-wing media to identify. You know, here's a bad billionaire. And it's from this that several different uh, right-wing books get um, written about George Soros and allege he's a Nazi collaborator and that he funds all these liberal groups and wants to bring communism to America. And then, of course, Glenn Beck in 2010 that we played at the start of this program um, really brings this uh, to a whole nother level. And then, of course, it continues on today where you have Alex Jones saying uh, George Soros is behind Charlottesville. George Soros is behind all of the protests against Trump. George Soros is behind the Women's March in 2017, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and again, if he wants to fund this podcast, we will delete it. <laughs> yeah, full disclosure, uh, I have been paid to uh, hold up signs in Times Square by George Soros uh, that say Trump is a Prussian spy. Uh, Indeed. <laughs> and um, it has a picture of him in a uniform with a hammer and sickle and a Prussian military vest. Because I couldn't read. It took a lot of courage, courage for us to do this pod today, <laughs> folks. I mean, we have a lot. You know, we've had past relations with the Soros Empire. But but we're, we're cutting that. against the grain right I now. I want everyone to know that I'm not just against Arpwell. I'm against all people named Connor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but that's basically the story of George Soros, is that um, he in, 20, in 2011, the Dodd-Frank Act passes, which would require more uh, disclosure from hedge funds. And this is when George Soros gets out of the game because he doesn't want to disclose what his, who his investors are and these kinds of things. <laughs> so in tw- uh, with the Dodd-Frank Act, George Soros shuts down his hedge fund and makes it essentially just a family wealth management fund. So only his family invests in it now. And then in 2017, he pulls about 18 billion. He retired of, to spend more time with his online petitions. <laughs> in uh, 2017, he pulls about 18 billion dollars out, puts it into his Open Society Foundation, which again is a, a non-governmental organization that funds uh, various, um, uh, let's say, pro-liberal democracy movements in various Eastern European countries. Um, but and they're it, doing great. Yeah, um, he essentially by 2011, had mostly retired from investing. 
um, and turned his fund over and, and these kinds of things. And now he just focuses on his philanthropy and writing books and uh, his political activism. He gave, I don't know, like $8 million to Hillary Clinton in 2016, which, again, drop in the bucket. But And, you know, it made all the difference. <laughs> I just want to say, um, during this period, uh, between 2005 and 2000. 10. George Soros has a relationship uh, with Adriana Ferrer, F-E-R-R-E-Y-R. 2005 to 2010. Yeah. And this is uh, before he married his his third wife. Um, and, and so basically what happens here is that um, before he marries his, his now wife, Alexis, I believe is her name. Mm-hmm. So this is a article written by uh, Bass Levin on DealBreaker.com, and it, it goes through exactly the relationship between George and this lady, Adriana. So in 2010, uh, he dumps for for just no real reason. He just goes, I gotta go. And he promises her a dream apartment in Manhattan, which he then gives to his now wife. So uh, this girl basically goes, I want this apartment. He goes, I'll get it for you, signs the papers, and then that night goes... Hey, I, I gotta tell you something. Uh, it's uh, it's not good. Um, it's written here. Uh, a few hours later, source whispers in Ferrer's ear that another woman, Tamika Bolden, is living in her apartment. This is a week later, and she gets mad about this. And so Soros apparently slaps her across the face and attempts to strike her with a glass lamp, narrowly missing. Mm. Um, so at this point, a year later, in August 2011, Adriana demands $50 million for broken promises, RE Dream Apartments, and makes allegations with the uh, assault and battery with the lamp and being slapped just now. Um, at one point, Soros offers to pay two hundred fifty grand instead of $50 million, you know, because he is a cheapskate. And Soros was like, I got that lamp from a house in Hungary in 1944. It is a priceless antique. So then um, Soros shows up in court in 2012 with his now wife, and then he, he proposes to her and then waits until the anniversary of, of... Wait, at the domestic abuse hearing? Yes, yes. And then waits until the anniversary of her going public with the demands to make the announcement of the uh, proposal, I think. Anyway, so um, one thing I want to mention is that during the time that Adriana and George Soros are together... He refers to Alexis as his traveling nurse because <laughs> uh, Adriana is at school in Colombia, and he's just like, no, I'm not sexually attracted to her at all. She's my traveling nurse. <laughs> You're in school. That's why you don't travel with me. But um, this guy's a fucking creep. Anyway, so during the fucking uh, hearing, though, this girl, Adriana, lunges at Soros during the court hearings and oh. then slaps headphones off of his head, hits her <laughs> own lawyer. Now fucking comments are loading. Anyway, point is, though, is that uh, he beat the crap out of this girl for no real reason. Though she does sound kind of crazy. Sure, sure. Uh, she, in her own right. She is a Brazilian soap opera star. Oh. Um, and, you know, once again, 50, 40 to 50 years her uh, senior, is he? Oh, so she's, yeah. like, just conditioned to, like... Shitty dudes. To slap the headphones yes. off of people. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything in my life has prepared me for this moment. <laughs> yeah. She threw a drink in the judge's face. But I just love how George Soros is dating this girl for five years. And he's like, oh, hey, by the way, I want to marry this other chick now. We'll be having great conversations. And then she just won't talk for five <laughs> minutes while advertisements <laughs> play. Uh, She'll yeah. fire a blank gun at me and say, to be continued. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know my half-brother was still alive and having an affair with her. <laughs> oh, man.
Like, so obviously, I think we all know he clearly does not eat the butt. I mean, that's the thing, something clear here. If he did, he wouldn't be married multiple times, wouldn't be dating this girl and talking about lying about the nurse. Uh, well, he does with his uh, with his funds. <laughs> Yogi, how do you think he got those fake papers I in mean, Hungary? That's true. Yeah, you know, you got to eat your way to the top. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's so it, it's it's essentially just kind of. Um, the story of uh, George Soros is a, a typical finance story, and the crime is what is legal, that he's made his money on the legal version of insider trading and government connections and these kinds of things. And for his part, he's uh, you know made the typical liberal billionaire suggestion that there should be um, more regulation of these financial markets, but he's been able to make billions of dollars, uh, almost thirty bi- more than $30 billion uh, without that. Right. You know? Um And just a a couple uh, random quotes from George Soros here. Uh, Quote, to be successful, you need leisure. You need time hanging heavily on your hands. Mm. So anybody can follow the George Soros method. (laughs) Just need time. Yeah. I mean, it was a complaint of his as he complains people just read his books to figure out how to get rich. And it turns out the answer was come to New York with (laughs) $45,000 in family money. First escape the Holocaust. Can I read a quote from Talk to world leaders. Uh, this guy called named Stanley Druckmiller, who was one of um, mm-hmm. Soros's like close confidants at Co- the Quantum Fund. Yeah, he was Soros's fund manager for a time. Yeah, so he, the he, fund both is and isn't of, legal. <laughs> of Soros, he said, "I've learned many things from George, but perhaps the most significant is that it's not whether you're right or wrong, but how much money you make when you're right and how much you lose when you're wrong." <laughs> He said as he looked through the window with rain during the dark periods of his life. <laughs> That's fucking nuts. I like the idea of him giving his uh, $8 million to Hillary Clinton in 2016 and being like, this will pay for at least three fake school shootings. <laughs> 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 we can hire the crisis actors. I will say, I think he's the only billionaire with a palindrome last name. I think that's, uh, that might be true. Hmm. Oh. Uh, one other... Uh, uh, Andy just came. <laughs> <laughs> George Soros writes in The Alchemy of Finance, 1987, quote, It will come as no surprise to the reader when I admit that I have always harbored an exaggerated view of my self-importance. To put it bluntly, I fancied myself as some kind of god or an economic reformer like Keynes or even better, a scientist like Einstein. And so... Wow. This, that kind of exaggerated sense of self-importance mm-hmm. from a billionaire? He compares him to Einstein. What a <laughs> yeah. fucking chooch. Yeah, yeah. Keynes, he, like Keynes's <laughs> general theory, special relativity, <laughs> and then my trade uh, blowing up the Bank of England. <laughs> <laughs> I I named a company after a misunderstanding of quantum mechanics. <laughs> there was um uh, there's two biographies on Soros. The one that I read, and then there's also an authorized biography which he cooperated, which which is called Soros: The Life and Times of a Messianic Billionaire. So certainly no God fantasies there. <laughs> Just a Messiah figure. <laughs> well, gentlemen, what's the verdict? Do we is he a good billionaire or is he not one? Uh, strictly based on his fetishization of the mystic aspects of quantum mechanics, um, I'm gonna say bad billionaire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just can't believe he slapped that one girl and, and almost hit her with a lamp. Oh that too, yeah. <laughs> Like, like it, you're lucky you're not a body at Newtown, Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I enjoy getting his checks in the mail every month, but, <laughs> but 
that's basically it as far as yeah i mean it's like uh, reading uh, and i read the biography and I, I know there's a lot of information here and we didn't get to all of it certainly but it's I mean, he's a classic liberal billionaire where he's a part of a, a class of people who have taken over the Democratic Party that was form formerly at least significantly controlled in part by labor unions. And right. that has been replaced by this class of millionaires and billionaires who, you know, they might not like Bush's foreign policy, but they certainly don't want to uh, um, put more union control. Like, in fact, they, they do mention in this biography that in 2004, there was a group of billionaires, including Soros, who got together. And one of them actually suggested a unionization drive at Walmart as a way to build power. Mm -hmm. And Soros was like, no, fuck that. <laughs> I'm just here to uh, defeat President Bush. <laughs> yeah. I have no interest in unions. So it's like, I think the Open Society Foundation probably does some good, but again, this is a private uh, philanthropy, uh, private foundation, and there are serious problems with with private charitable foundations where essentially one man's whims are what goes. You know, it's right. not it's not a bottom up kind of thing. It's like, okay, I'm going to tell you what the best good to do with my money is, and so you have this NPR interview, which I'll certainly put the drop in after in post. But essentially, they ask him like don't you feel bad when you see homeless people? And he was like, I just don't give money to homeless people <laughs> because he <laughs> thinks that his good deed is giving his money to his foundation when, of course, the foundation just does what he thinks is uh, the, the right thing for the world, which is uh, colored by these liberal billionaire biases where he thinks it's okay to still be a billionaire. Hey, why has got to be colored? You know what I mean? Why, why can't it? <laughs> also, there's nothing mystical about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. It's just a description of how particles on the quantum scale interact with each other. It's one feature of it. There's nothing magic about the uncertainty principle. It's just a property of matter. Well, anything else about our friend George Soros? I think uh, I think we covered it all. Okay. And with that... I'm still mad. <laughs> this has been Grubstakers. My name's Yogi Paul. I'm Andy Palmer. Uh, I'm Sean McCarthy. The episode was a day late because he wouldn't pay us. <laughs> I'm Steve Jeffries. <laughs> All right, have a good night. See you next week. Thanks. I, I don't uh, give money to beggars as, 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 as such. I don't think that's the way to change things. Uh,